How are we doing, church? Doing good? Good. All right. Look like you guys are ready for church and then a Jags game. Amen? All right. Hey, uh, if you got your Bibles, I hope you do. We found uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 by now. We're going to be in it uh, for the next five weeks or so, studying the Shema. Um, and, and before we dig in, how's your Daniel fast going? Doing good? Feeling good about that Daniel fast? Yeah, I feel about the same way. Uh, <clears throat> so just as a reminder, if you, if you haven't joined us, then please do. We're Daniel Fasting for Saturated, which starts on Wednesday. Are you ready for Saturated? All right? Amen. All right. Uh, I, I did student ministry for about 15 years, and when I started working with you people, adults, I thought the problem with adults is they quit going to camp. And uh, so what Saturated is for us, it is a uh, sort of a revival. We don't like to call it revival because we don't like to tell God when he's going to revive us, but we're praying for revival. And so we just want to be saturated in the presence of God and the Word of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it starts on Wednesday night, and it goes through Sunday. There's information in your bulletin. I hope you will be there for that. Uh, and where we're going to be today is we're going to be in, in the Shema, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The reason it's called the Shema is because that first word here, in, in Hebrew, that word is Shema. Shema, Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad, all right? That's the Hebrew for it. And in fact, part of the reason I want to spend some time on that, we're going to spend an entire um, service just on that one verse, is this part, the Lord. You see, the, the word translated in English, the Lord, is from the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the name of God. It's, it's a tetragram. There's just four letters. It's a, a Y-H-W-H, or unless you're German, it's J-H-V-H. And so it's Yahweh in Hebrew or Jehovah uh, in German. And, and it's a really, really big, big deal. It's the name of God. Translated in English, you'll remember this about this time last year when, Abraham, I mean, when Moses bumps into God at the burning bush and God says, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, who should I say send me, just in case he asks. And God says, you tell him, I am that I am sent me. Well, literally, in Hebrew, it was Yahweh, that Yahweh sent me. And so the word, the, the, the name Yahweh, it's supposed to sound like a breath, like to, to inhale and exhale, Yahweh, all right, Yahweh. Now, my seminary professors would pronounce it Hayah, but all I could ever think of is like a little Judy chop, you know what I mean, Hayah, and I, that just threw me off. So Yahweh is the name of God, which means in English, we translate it, I am that I am, or to be, or the eternal present. That's it. That God would be as close to us as our very own breath. It was supposed to sound like breathing. <clears throat> and that was the name of God. That God is the eternal now. There is no past and there is no future for God. That's why when we get to heaven, we will sing, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's his name, Yahweh, to be. I am that I am. But in, in ancient Israel, um, <clears throat> the religious Jews would have such a respect for this name Yahweh, the name of God, they would never even say it. Not only would they not say it, instead of saying Yahweh, they would use this other word called Adonai, which means the Lord. In fact, when the scribes or the Pharisees, when they were, um, you know, you couldn't exactly take the scriptures down to Kinko's and just make a copy. And so uh, some, of, some of their job, their whole life, they spend their whole life making copies of the scriptures to distribute to the, to the different synagogues. When they would get to this, like, for instance, this verse here, Hear, O Israel, the Lord. When they got to the, the words, the Lord, in the scriptures, Yahweh, 
they would take out a pen, and you know, they'd be writing with their pen, here, O Israel, and then they get to the Lord, and then they would set that pen aside, and they would go over, and they would ceremonially wash their hands up to their elbows to make sure that they were clean before the Lord. They would, they would take a new pen or a new quill, and they would go, and they would write that one word, Yahweh. Then they would sacrifice that pen. That pen would never write another thing ever again. And then they would go back to this basin, basin ceremonially wash their hands again, and then come back to the text, our God, comma, oh, here we go again. Sacrifice that pen, go, wash their hands, bring it back, here it is again, Yahweh. And then sacrifice that one, and then keep going. So it might take a minute. And so the deal is, Though it, sometimes, sometimes in our culture, in an effort for churches like our church to make sure that people don't see God just as some sovereign, angry king of the universe that's out to get us, um, sometimes we can just lose the reverence and respect for the almighty, all-powerful Yahweh, king of the universe, who was and is and is to come. And a part of what Deuteronomy 6, 4, or the Shema says, Hear, O Israel. And that means, listen up, Israel. This is a big deal. This declaration, this declaration of the one true God in in a place that was surrounded by cultures that believed in, you know, kind of the God of the day. And he's a really, really big deal. What I want to do in our time together today is to paint a picture of this one true God. That we would just marvel at the majesty of of who God is. So I want to share with you four attributes about God that might help us try to, try to understand Him a little bit better. And the first is this, and it's all in your notes. <clears throat> the first one is this, that God is omnipotent. That God is omnipotent, omnipotent. That means He is all-powerful. <clears throat> the Bible says it this way. In Psalm 147.4, the Bible says that He, that's God, that God determines the number of stars and He gives to all of them their names. So tonight, before you go to bed, I want you to walk outside, and I think it's supposed to be a clear night, a cool night, praise God for the fall, don't you love the fall, I love the fall, and you just go out tonight, and I want you to look at all of the stars, and I want you to think about it, that God spoke those things into existence, that he determines the number of stars, and he gives all of them their name, or Isaiah 40, 26 says it this way, lift your eyes and look to the heavens, that's your command tonight, before you go to bed, to lift your eyes and look up to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. You see, the way the Bible starts out is that God created, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was, and it was good. And so out of the mouth of God comes exploding onto the canvas of creation every single one of those stars. And it's a really, really, really big deal. And a lot of the times we don't think it's a big deal because of our projects in the third grade. You remember your solar system project in the third grade? And it just wasn't very impressive, was it? And so, and you could always tell in third grade the, the kids whose dad did their projects for them. 
And then the kids who did it on their own. My dad would help me a little bit because he didn't want us to embarrass him and embarrass his name, so he would help us. But there was a couple of kids in my class, and I'm telling you, I think their dads worked for like the planetarium. Remember this? You would build our solar system. Now, I'm so old that when I was in school, uh, Pluto was still a planet. Do you guys know that Pluto has been reduced? It's no longer a planet, all right? Didn't know we had Pluto fans here. We're redefining everything these days, right? So just whatever. Not a planet anymore. But back in my day, we had nine of them. <clears throat> and, and, you know, and you'd get a big old yellow uh, styrofoam ball and, you know, paint that dude yellow. And then a coat hanger to the next one, next one. We're number three. That's about all I remember, all right? And then all the way out to nine. And then there was this one kid, and he wasn't even that smart. I mean, well, he barely knew his name or the class that we were in. And yet his was amazing. Like the sun had heat, and, and, Ju- and you know, the, uh, Saturn had the ring around it, and Jupiter had the multiple moons, and it would rotate or orbit, and as it would orbit, the moon would orbit around the earth, and I was like, I know that's not yours. He's like, no, dude, I totally made it. Uh, you don't even know the planets, and all he knew was this, the yellow one's the sun. That's all he had. And so we see that, and we don't think, we, we kind of lose some of the majesty of of what God did when he spoke into existence everything that is. By the way, in uh, our sun, you know, the yellow one that's in the middle, it's kind of an average star in our universe. It's not really that big a deal. We think it's a pretty big deal. It produces enough energy every second um, that would be the equivalent of one trillion, one megaton bombs. A trillion Megaton bombs. And some of you are like, Pastor, I obviously know what that means, but could you please explain that to my wife? (laughs) That's enough energy to run our entire civilization for 500,000 years. Every second. Every second. The sun erupts and explodes in this nuclear explosion that, that, that creates enough energy to run every bit of our civilization for 500 thousand years. And the reality is, our sun, I know we think it's a big deal, I know we like it and to go just sit and look at it and get cooked and all of that, but it's really not even that big deal. In our own galaxy, in our galaxy, which is called the Milky Way, there's a hundred, or there's 200 billion stars. 200 billion stars. And then, in regards to the, to the whole, all of the galaxies put together, there's about 125 billion galaxies. And again, the Milky Way is just one of them, one of 125 billion there's, um, here's how many stars there are in all. There's 3,000 million billion stars. 3,000 million billion stars. That's three with 24 zeros behind it. And sometimes, I'm kind of like you, right? Like you're watching the news and they're like, our debt is about that much. You're like, how much is that? I don't know what that is. Is that a lot? Seems like a lot. Anything more than about 600 bucks, I'm like, whoa, what is going on here? <laughs> Just to put it in perspective, a million seconds ago, you want to think about a million seconds? A million seconds ago was September the 2nd. That's how many, a million seconds ago, all right? It's about a week and four days. A billion seconds. So for millions, September 2nd, you think, okay, a billion. That, that's probably, that's Christmas, right? Last Christmas? No, that's January 1984. Billion seconds ago. Some of you cats in here aren't even a billion seconds old yet, all right? So <laughs> a trillion seconds ago is 31,688 years. So that's the difference. I need you to get your head around this billion because there's 125 billion galaxies. There's 3,000 million billion stars in all. There's 200 billion stars in our galaxy. That's a big deal. And God said, I want that. Boom. And it was just there. He spoke it into existence. And so our, our galaxy, the Milky Way, you know, where we live, our, our kind of neighborhood is... Uh, 
It's about 100,000 light years wide. 100,000 light years wide. See, so when you measure the creation of God, you can't really just get out your, your tape measure, right? And be like, hey, can you hold that other end? It always breaks, all right? No, can you hold that? Because in, in God's economy, uh, a mile or a kilometer, none of that's going to work. You're going to need to use the light year. A light, light travels at 186,000 miles a second. 186,000 miles a second. And so the distance that light will travel in a year's time is a light year. And the Milky Way, the thing that we live in, is 100 million light years wide. And so uh, light traveling at 186,000 miles per second means it'll travel around the earth about seven times in a second. That's how fast light is going. Boom, just that fast. So a light year is about 5.88 trillion miles. It's a long way. Big, big deal. Our sun is about 93 million miles away from us. It takes about eight minutes for the light to leave that big ball of, you know, trillions and trillions of megatons of energy just coming at us. It takes eight minutes to get here, all right? And it's a big, big deal. And uh, I, just so you could see, I, I just need to try to get, get your head around what God is doing here when he just speaks into creation all these things. I got a picture of where we live. There's the Milky Way, okay? See that big, it's a, we live in a, a, in, a, in a cylindrical solar system. And if you'll see uh, that little arrow, that's where we live. That's earth. And I know how you are. You're like me. Anytime you look a picture, you're like, where am I at? Am I in that? And if you look good, you're like, oh, that's a great picture. <laughs> and if you don't look good, you're like, we got to redo that one. Well, here's the problem. Uh, you can't really see yourself in this deal. Okay? And it's also just, just empirical evidence that the world does not revolve around you. We don't even live in the middle. <laughs> okay? And all of those other bright lights that you see, those aren't other stars that just kind of got out of the neighborhood and are running away from the Milky Way. <clears throat> those are other galaxies. Those are some of the 125 billion other galaxies. You see, our God is omnipotent, omnipotent. He just spoke that into existence. Oh, I've got more. <clears throat> uh, there's a spiral galaxy that's just like ours. It's called NGC 4414. It's 62 million light years away. 62 million light years away. And uh, astronomers love this one because it's, it's very, very similar to the Milky Way galaxy. And it's exactly perpendicular to ours. So, again, if you want to go check it out one day, leave Walmart, take a left, go 186,000 miles per second. You do that for... Uh, a year, and that's one light year. You do that for 62 million years, and you're going to bump into NGC 4414, okay? And you'll see, oh, this looks familiar. It kind of looks like our place. The, the, the galaxy that is furthest away that they found is this. It's EGSZS81. I don't see anybody writing this down. This is very important <laughs> stuff. People spend their whole lives trying to find this stuff, and you're just going to just take it for granted. Okay, whatever. EGSZS81 is 13.1 billion light years from earth. And God just said, I want that. And boom, there it was. 13.1 billion light years away. And I tried to figure out what these names mean, like NGC 4414 and EGSZS81. And, and I, think, I think when we do this, God kind of giggles. Because <laughs> the Bible says that he determines the number of stars and he calls to all of them 
their names, the 3,000 million billion stars, and, and I bet he clumped them together, the 125 billion galaxies. And we're saying, oh, look, that, that's NGC 4414. And God's probably like, oh, you, that, that's so cute. You see, you, you guys were on it. You, you were on the right track when you started out by calling yours the Milky Way because actually I name them after candy bars. You see, that's Kit Kat. Y'all don't know about Kit Kat. <laughs> and the one that's 13.1 billion, that's Reese's because it's awesome. All right, it's Reese's. And if y'all would quit looking at Facebook and get after it and build something that you could see 26.1 billion light years away, I got some stuff out there, okay? I got Skittles, and I got M&Ms, and I got all of these other galaxies. Why? Because I just want them. Because I just want them. And sometimes scientists, especially those that are still looking for ET and that sort of stuff, um, when they look around the universe and they say, God, it seems like an awful waste of space if all of these universes, billions and billions of light years in every direction, in an ever-expanding universe just for us to live here, I agree if the only point was that me and you would live here, but what if, what if the point was not about me and you? What if the point was that this is just what happened when the almighty, omnipotent God opens his mouth and says, let there be light. He's a big, big God. He's a big, big God. Amen? God is omnipotent, omnipotent. He just spoke that into being. Not only that, God is omniscient. This is the scary one. God knows your thoughts. He knows everything at all times. Not only does he know the, all the trillion billions of stars and call them by name, he also knows you, and he could walk in here right now and just walk right through the room and call every single one of us by name. The Bible says it this way in Psalm 139. Verses 1 through 4, it says, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. <clears throat> and even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. That God knows everything. Not only that you say, He knows the thoughts before you even say them. That God knows, God knows Every paragraph and every sentence and every word on the page of every book that has ever been or will ever be written, that God knows everything. Everything. He knows what you're thinking right now. In fact, you ever read in the New Testament when Jesus is around some people and he just reads people's thoughts? Doesn't that kind of freak you out a little bit? In Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, the Bible says this, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, not out loud, they just said to themselves, they said, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Uh-oh. <laughs> so if you bump into Jesus at, you know, Publix this afternoon, I'm telling you, you just need to be think like, you know, a bunnies, 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 bunnies. You just need to run... <laughs> Worship songs through your head or whatever it is because people would think stuff and Jesus would answer them out loud. So you know what that means? That Jesus knows every single thing that you're thinking. So when your wife did come out this morning and say, how do I look, baby? He knew already. He knew. He knew. That should not impact your answer at all, but he <laughs> knew. And the crazy thing is, is he loves us anyway. I mean, think about it. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows those of you that just checked your watch. He knows you should be ashamed of yourself, and he loves you anyway. You see, something uh, really tragic happened in the last few weeks. If you breathe oxygen, you've heard of Ashley Madison, the, the website to help assist people in having affairs. 
There's like 37 million people that were signed up for Ashley Madison. There were only three zip codes in all of the United States that didn't have at least one subscriber, three. All right, and they were like in places like Alaska where 88 people live and stuff like that. The internet cord hadn't quite made it all the way out there yet, okay? It's places like that. There were, there were hundreds of politicians, thousands of professors. What's scary about that is that these are our decision makers, our policy makers, our influencers of, a, of an, another generation. And then the one that hit closest home to me is there were 400 pastors. 400 pastors. Now, every time I say that, people are like, <gasps> as if pastor, if, I, if like every pastor opens up their shirt, there's like a big S with a cape. You know, look, they're just regular dudes that sin too, Okay. And here's the thing, the, mo the most tragic one, the saddest one that I saw was there was a pastor in New Orleans that committed suicide because he just couldn't handle the fact that people would know. And here's the reality. God knew. God knew. Can I just tell you this? Um, have you ever seen a crime show? Nothing is anonymous. Nothing stays in private. All things will be made known. They just will. And even if they don't, don't you realize that God knows it all? He knows everywhere we go, everything we do, every thought we think, God already knows. And maybe, maybe it's actually the grace of God that you get busted so you'll face your sin and repent and run to Him. Maybe it's the wrath of God that turns you over to your own desires and you can live in darkness your whole entire life. Here's what's crazy. Jesus addressed, addressed something like Ashley Madison. They didn't have the website yet, but He said, You have heard, thou shalt not commit adultery. And everybody's like, Yep, heard about that. But I say to you, if you've ever lusted after a woman in your heart, and everybody went, uh-oh, and he knew, he knew, he knows every single thought that we have. And here's the crazy part, the cross outs us all, and he loves you anyway, and he loves you anyway, all right? So I would say to you, if you're here, and you're on the Ashley Madison outed list, repent, come to Jesus he loves you anyway, not just one day when you get it all together, but the fact that he died on the cross is because you and I are wretched, black-hearted sinners. He knows that and says, I still love you. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. <clears throat> and the third one is this, God is omnipresent. The Bible says it this way in Psalm 139, 7 through 10, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I, make, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. That means God is in all places at all times, always. There is not one square inch in this ever-expanding universe that Christ has not claimed as his home. That God is omnipresent. Omnipresent. He is everywhere. It's reported when C.S. Lewis became a Christian. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors ever. Um, he was, he was a, a, a theologian. and Well, before that, he was a, a professor over in England. And he would go to the pub with uh, J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings guy. And they would sit and smoke a pipe and drink a pint. And they would talk about theology and fairies, all right? They would, and imagination. And I mean, we're not ready for that level of nerddom. But God used that for Tolkien to lead C.S. Lewis to Christ. And so, uh, new in his faith, he, he finds this, this kid, this lad, he says, and he asked the guy, he asked the kid, have you found God? And the little boy says, sir, I didn't know he was lost. And then C.S. Lewis says to the boy, well, I'll give you an orange if you can tell me where he is. And reportedly, the boy answers back, sir, I'll give you two if you can tell me where he's not. You see, I know I want to hire that kid. All right, he's probably dead now, he's old. But, <laughs> but the reality is, is that God is at all places at all times. 
So if you grew up in church, you grew up in this understanding that this was the Lord's house. This isn't the Lord's house. This is a renovated Walmart. Okay? That God is no more here than he is next door at Hobby Lobby than he is, uh, you know, at Lamb at Large Bar when it was there. All right? God is in all places at all times. Now, there is a difference between the, the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. You see, the omnipresence of God is like being in a hot spot, an eternal hot spot, that Wi-Fi is available always, whether you're plugged in or not. And then the manifest presence of God is turning your phone on and receiving the reality that His presence is there. And so there are some <clears throat> promises in the Bible where God manifests His omnipresence. Like, for instance, when we gather in this place, in Jesus' name, Jesus promises, I'll be there. Next week it's saturated from Wednesday to Sunday. The reason, the reason that we're gathering in that way is to celebrate the reality that for everybody that's trusted Jesus, that God's presence is not up on a mountain somewhere. His presence is actually in here now because we are His temple. And we're going to gather together and understand that when we lift up His name, that we make a throne room for Him to sit upon. And, and God Almighty, the, makers of the, heaven, the maker of the heavens and the earth, leans down and sits with us and abides with us. And it's His presence that changes everything. And it's always available and always there. Sometimes you just got to turn on the reception so he'll manifest himself. That God is omnipotent. That God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. That God is omnipresent. That he is everywhere. And then the fourth one is this. The fourth attribute of God is this, is that God is immutable. That means that he never, ever changes. That God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Now, though he is operating under a different covenant after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God never changes. The Bible says this in James Chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. <clears throat> you see, a lot of times we think that God changes because our culture changes so fast. I don't know, about every 10 years, our culture wants to redefine something. Whatever we're redefining now, our children will be redefining something later, all right? And just because we change does not mean that God changed. God or His views do not change. He is immutable because if God could change, then he would cease to be God. If he could change to be better, that means he would not be fully God yet, that he's not quite there if he could improve. And if he could change to be worse, then that would disqualify him from God, from being God. It should be a great comfort to us that God Almighty never, ever, ever, ever changes. Let me just tell you how this impacts you on a very, very personal level. Sometimes when you come in here and you've sinned and you feel guilty and you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the enemy begins to whisper to you, then you might not really be a Christian. Or God might just take it away. God may have seen your hand last week and said, okay, I save you. And then he saw what you did Friday night and went, never mind, give it back. You see, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Because God never changes. And also, he is all-powerful to save you, and he's all-knowing. So he knew what he was getting when he chose you, when he adopted you, and he never, ever, ever will take it away. God never changes. Now, if you think, well, how do I get my mind around that? You can't get your mind around God. Anybody that thinks you can understand the fullness of God, then your God is too small. And if, you're gonna, if, if God really is who God says he is, then he ought to be a little confusing. Your mind ought to be a little bit blown. That there is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God exp expressing himself in three persons. That'll blow your mind, right? Try to think about that for just a minute. 
Or, you really want to be confused? Watch Jesus pray. Jesus, God, is praying to himself, but the Father, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, who's also God, but different. Huh? Right. Right. Exactly. So, it would be like going down to the Atlantic Ocean with a Dixie cup saying, all right, I want to put all that in here. That's the life of every theologian. Going before an almighty God and saying, okay, I want to understand the omnipotence. I want to understand the omniscience, the omnipresence, and the immutability of God. And I needed to fit it all right in here. Can't even program your DVR. Who in the world do you think you are? (laughs) And yet, there's something in all of us. There's something in all of us that at times begin to like try to tell God who he is. And, and what, I mean, honestly, think about it. As I study these kind of things, when I'm reminded, when I'm reminded of the bigness and the majesty and the vastness of our God, and it's not all about me, I'm, I'm telling you a place, one of the places that I'm most convicted is my prayer life, because I think, uh-oh, because most of my prayer life is me giving it God advice and me working things out for God. I have diagrams in my office on how God could do what I'm telling him he needs to do, that I'm informing him of some information uh, God, I don't know if you know, but our church is growing. It's like, I know, I'm bringing them all. I mean, you know, those kinds of things. And it's just a reminder that God's still got the whole world in his hands. And one of my favorite places to see this is in Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. From Job chapter 1, Job's doing awesome. From 2 to 37, not that awesome. You can read it for yourself if you kind of need a downer. And then Job's got some terrible friends. And Job's friends come to him all throughout the book of Job. And they're, they're basically saying to Job, Job, this isn't fair. You should tell God that he owes you, that you deserve better than this because you're righteous. And you read through that and you think, who would do that? I can tell you who would do that, me and you. Because when God, when God doesn't behave, when God doesn't do what we want him to do, every single one of us at some point, you, either in prayer or prayer requests or griping to a friend or a small group prayer request or whatever it is, we've kind of made our case against God. And by the time you get to Job chapter 37, Job essentially puts God on trial. That's the way the Hebrew makes it sound. The Job is wagging his finger. God, you owe me. I live the righteous life. You owe me. How could you do this to me, God? I don't understand. Who are you that you would do this to me? And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if you're not careful, we can do this too. Evangelicalism can lead you to this. You trying to be a better version of you can lead you to this because what will happen is you think you can put God in your debt. And you begin to look around. And if you're honest, and I know this church is no place for that, but if you're honest, you will look around and be like, God, what's the deal? Why am I being treated this way? Why does she get the promotion and I don't get the promotion? All right? Look, I'm Daniel fasting. She eats cake for breakfast. I've seen her. All right? What's up with that? And, and <clears throat> look, I, I didn't go see Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh-uh. I saw a War Room. All right? I'm entertained by Christian things. And yet, look at her. How come she's married and I'm not? And God, I do a quiet time. And I went to elder-led prayer and I'm going to saturate it. God, I do all these things for you. Lord, I think you kind of owe me. That's kind of what Job does going before the Lord. And then the Lord speaks back to him in Job chapter 38. You ought to read it. It's really like three or four chapters long where God responds to Job. And I love it. He says this. It says, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And God says this. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. The NIV says, brace yourself like a man. I love that. God essentially goes, after he sees Job, like, waving his finger about, God, I got to tell you something. 
God steps up and is like, all right, Hall, stand up. You're going to take this like a man, all right? This is going to hurt a bit. And God says, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Here's the first question God asks. Now, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Like, I've been thinking back, you know, I was looking through my time hop when I spoke into existence NGC 4414, better known as Kit Kat. Now, can you remind me where you were? Because I don't remember you, you being around, Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurement? Like, Job, I remember speaking the earth into existence, and I don't remember you holding the other end of the tape measure. But surely, Job, you know everything. You were there. Who determines his measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or, or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? I think God looks at our Hubble telescope and goes, oh, that's really cute. And you guys think you guys have figured out a lot. Now, you see that big picture of earth that you have, right? Isn't that sweet? Now, who do you think is holding that thing up? What is it sitting on? The yellow one's the sun. That's where we are. And for the rest of the book of Job, he says, I mean, he says things like, hey, Job, all right, tell me this, dude. So where do you keep all the lightning before you strike it? Uh, Where do you keep all the rain before you drop it? Where do you keep all the snow? How long do you determine that the days are, Job? Essentially, God's like, brother, there's places on your own back you can't scratch, okay? Won't you just shut up? You can't even kiss your own elbow. I am the almighty, omnipotent, sovereign God. Who do you think you are? And Job says, uh, nothing. Or you see it in the New Testament, too, in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, Revelation is written by John, our friend that we've been studying for a long time. And if you're new to Bible study, let me encourage you, don't just start off in Revelation, all right? But I'm a professional. I can get us in and out without anybody, you know, getting left behind. So Revelation chapter... I don't know who the Christians are. All right, so... uh... So Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, John, one of the apostles, has this vision or revelation. That's where he gets his name from. It's not Revelations. There's not three of them. There's just one, Revelation. And he has this vision, and Jesus says, write it all down. And here's a part of it in 12. It says, then I, that's John, <clears throat> and then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. So, So John sees this revelation and it looked like the Son of Man, but he wasn't kind of, he wasn't sure because it looked different. Last time he saw the Son of Man, they were fishing at the Sea of Galilee, right? I mean, he was just kind of about six foot one. Brown hair, no split ends. You've seen the movie, right, with the English accent. It's kind of weird, but I don't know. And now he's seeing Jesus in his glorified state, post-resurrection and glorification as he goes up, ascends to the right hand of God the Father. And in his right hands, he's got seven stars. Maybe they're just average stars like our sun. And every second, there's this explosion that's letting off enough energy to fuel our civilization for 500,000 years. And his eyes are on fire, and his hair's all crazy and white. And in his right hand, he's got seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, 
shining in full strength. And when I, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You know why? Because John thought, I'm dead. This is true. I mean, you think our son's intense. Just go look at it today for a while. Just stare at it. You're 93 million miles away. Imagine being 9.3 steps from it. Boom, you're gone. You're gone. And then somehow John gets caught up in this revelation and he sees the glorified Jesus Christ and he falls on his face and he thinks he's dead. He goes, this looks different. And if you could step into that scene and kind of call time out, you'd be like, come on, John, what are you doing, man? Get off your face. That's your boy. That's your homeboy, Jesus. You got the t-shirt, right? I mean, this is your friend. This is your fishing buddy. In fact, John, doesn't he love you most? Remember how you told us in your book that you got to write? John, the one that Jesus loved. So I'm not taking that with too much salt. You know what I'm saying? And so isn't this him? And John's like, no, 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 no. It's different. It's different. He's powerful. He's almighty. He's ever-present. He's all-knowing. He's unchangeable. That is our God. And yet, and even there, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I'm the first and I'm the last. You see, God is all-powerful, and God is, God is so powerful that we don't even have a category in our minds that he spoke into existence, all of those stars and creation. And right now, right now, it's by his very hand and his power that he holds our earth on its axis at just the right angle, revolving around the, its axis and orbiting around the sun at just the right place so that we could be here. And yet, the almighty, ever-present God loved you enough and me enough to step down on the earth and to come on a rescue mission to know me and to know you. And both are true. In 1122, we need to know both parts of God. We need to know how big He is and how unimaginable He is and how indescribable He is. And we also need to know how personal he is and how small he became in Jesus to come on a rescue mission for you or me because if you lean in in one direction or the other you have like this angular view of God that's not helpful or healthy at all the only thing I can think of to describe it because some people can grab on the God as this huge God but he doesn't really care about them personally and then some people think no 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 Jesus is just like my buddy that I kind of take for granted and you ignore the majesty of God it's like going into the gym and seeing that guy you know the guy I'm talking about Every gym has several of them. You walk into the gym, and there he is. He's all buff up top, and you can tell by his tank top, and he's just ripped. I mean, he's jacked. He is, and he knows it, and he knows everybody else knows it, and he can't walk by a shiny, you know, piece of anything without a little, you know, flexing a little bit. But on a hot summer day, when he runs out of sweatpants one day, you'll see him come in in shorts, and you think, whoo, last time I saw legs like that, they were hanging out of a nest. What is wrong with you, Hoss? <laughs> you know? And he lacks symmetry. It's just all upper body, and there's just these little, you know, he's built like a railroad spike, real big up here, and it just kind of comes down to a point. And it's not very intimidating. He can come out to you all like that, and you'd be like, I just push you over. <laughs> now, you could do a push-up and come back at me, but just, you know, we could do this all day, no problem. And oftentimes, theologically, that's how some people are. You tend to lean in one direction or the other. And so, I just need you to know this. That the almighty, ever-present, all-knowing, ever-changing God of the universe wants you to discover and deepen a relationship with Him through Jesus. I mean, think about that. Who am I? Nobody. Who is He? 
almighty and yet he loves you. The almighty, ever-present, all-knowing, never-changing God wants you. And I am not talking about your neighbor. I'm talking about you. He wants you to discover and deepen a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. That's why he came. That's why he came. I've used this illustration a lot, but it's the only one I can think of. One day when I grow up and get smarter, I'll think of a better one. But when I was in college, my, uh, we lived in this building, and next to it was a vacant lot, and there were all these ants, you know, these carpenter ants. I think that's what they're called, those real big daddy carpenter ants. And when I would be on my way to class, my neighbor kid, uh, he would have his big wheel. Remember the big wheel? It was terrible. It was, it was fun for many days. And then the, the front wheel would get a wheel a hole in it. And then remember the big wheel was about this high, so no cars could see you, so you'd be sure to die. You know what I'm saying? That's it. <laughs> And so this kid, he would go out to the vacant lot, and he would take jelly, and he would spread it all over the vacant lot. And I guess the, you know, the ants would put it out on Facebook, hey, jelly for everybody at the vacant lot next to Joby's house. And the kid would wait until all these carpenter ant deals would just I mean, they'd be everywhere, and then he would go through there and like power slide on them and just kill the ants, all right? And uh, I know, whatever. And I'm not that much of an ant lover, but if, I thought the kid was crazy, and he was. I think it's because his mom used time out. But anyway, that's a different sermon. So, <laughs> but if I was going to communicate with the ants, you see, if I had this heart for ants, if I loved the ants, if, you know, the ants were my, my animals or whatever, and, and I were to try to communicate with them and to do it as me, it'd be impossible, right? If I stood above the ants, and hear ye, hear ye, all ye ants. Thou shalt not eat the jelly, because it will lead to death. I know it's sweet for a season, but it's over. They would just look at me and be like, look at the size of that boot, okay? Now, if I were just an ant my whole life, I wouldn't have the perspective to understand that psycho big wheel boy is on his way with some jelly. And so I would simultaneously need to be big enough, powerful enough, and big enough to have the right perspective to see their future and small enough, the only way I could communicate with them is to become an ant, to grow up like an ant, to speak ant language, and yet still have the perspective that I have, and then one day at just the right time, say, behold, ants, follow me. Follow me. I know the jelly tastes good for a season, but look around. See all the ant legs and squished body parts, okay? That's going to be you one day. Follow me to across the street. There is no psycho boy there with the big wheel. His mom won't let him cross the street. Follow me and sort of. That's what Jesus did when he showed up. (laughs) That in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God and the Word was with God. And the Word became flesh and he dwelt among us. That the almighty, ever-present, immutable God of the universe that spoke it into existence showed up on this earth. It's called the Incarnation. To be just like us, powerful enough to do something about our situation, big enough to have the right perspective to see what we needed. And then he walked this earth and he said things like this. He said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I I command you. No longer do I call you servant, for a servant does not know his master's business. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father... I've made known to you. That's what Jesus said. The same one, according to Colossians chapter 1, that spoke into existence the Milky Way. Or in James 2, 23, the Bible says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God or trusted God or surrendered his 
he surrendered his own will to the will of God, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Abraham was a friend of God. Hard to believe, isn't it? One of my favorite verses is Revelation 3.20. It's written to a church. <clears throat> it's written to a church. That had kind of become casual in their faith if they even had faith. And then the Bible says this in Revelation 3.20. It's Jesus speaking. And he says, behold. Now behold just means, hey, listen up. Pay attention. We're looking at Facebook. Jesus is talking. Behold. I stand at the door and knock. Who does? Jesus. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. If who? If anyone. If anyone. I am not talking to your neighbor. If anyone hears my voice and lets me in, I'll come in and of all things, eat with him and he with me. The almighty, ever-present, all-knowing, immutable God of the universe that spoke this thing into existence. He desires that you would be in a relationship with Him. You see, in the Bible, eating is a big deal. Praise God. Not for Daniel, but for everybody else. <laughs> eating is a big deal. Because relationships are a big deal. And so, it's hard to get your mind around, but um, God, the God of the universe... He wants to sit down at the table with you, regardless of what your table looks like. Isn't that cool? Whether you have this amazing oceanfront dining room that you go eat in like every other year, you know, when guests come over, or you're a college student and you share an apartment with seven people and you've been eating off a beanbag and eating ramen noodles, it don't matter. See, I remember about uh, like 17 years ago, 18 years ago, something like that, um, when I first met Gretchen, we met in the gym, and, uh, you know, she stalked me and Asked me out a lot, and she's not here right now, and I have the mic. No, so really, I, I stalked her pretty bad. And this is before you, you got it easy with Facebook. You know, you just wait until somebody checks in. So I just kept a gym bag in my truck, and whenever her car was there, I'd work out that time. So whatever, all right? So uh, after I got to know her, we began to talk and talk and talk in the gym and talk and talk and talk. And uh, we weren't dating. We were just friends, you know. But if she had a friend like me, I'd kill him, you know what I'm saying? And so eventually I asked her out, and she said yes. And... Um, I was a youth pastor back then, fresh out of seminary, and uh, I was broke, and so I saved and saved and saved, and I took her to the nicest place I knew in Roanoke, Virginia. It was uh, Chili's, and so we went to Chili's, <laughs> and we sat down at the table that night, and it, and it looked nothing like this at all, right? It's just that kind of fake wood table with the gum under the side, and somebody's leftover taco over there, and let's hear it, Ben. Let's, let's sound more spiritual when you play anyway. <laughs> And we sat down at Chili's, and we sat across from each other and looked eyeball to eyeball. And I remember we ordered wine at Chili's, so you know it's going to be good, right? And uh, I don't even know why they poured it. And I said something, and we toasted, and I sipped a little. and poof. But it was romantic. That's what you do, okay? And, uh, and we had a good time. We got to know each other a little bit. And so uh, I asked her out again. She said yes. And again, she said yes. And I kept asking her out, and she kept saying yes. And then one day we got to the point where uh, I just quit asking her out. And I got down on, a, on my knee and I asked her to be my wife. And it was really through these kind of things. We would sit down, we would go face to face with each other. And we would do, I mean, we did all kind of stuff together, right? Ate more frozen yogurt than you could weigh and watch more stupid movies. 
terrible movies we watch. And... <laughs> but you don't really get to know people watching movies. You get to know people when you sit down and you break bread together and you look at each other and you laugh and you tell stories and you make up lies about what a great athlete you were in high school and, you know, all the things that real marriage is built on. And <laughs> Then you get to a point one day where you're ready to make a covenant. A covenant. Did you stand before your friends and family and God Almighty, the same one that spoke into existence? This big rock we're spinning on. And I made a promise. No matter what, I love you. No matter what, till death do us part. And still, now it's 15 years later. And we still make a habit of sitting down, eyeball to eyeball. And I can tell you it's better now than it was 15 years ago. Not just because, not just the external stuff like where we can eat and those kinds of things and the blessing of this church and the blessing of our family, but because somehow God Almighty made a way for this girl that I do not deserve. I have outpunted my coverage something fierce that she said yes. And the Almighty Sovereign God of the universe, the one that spoke into existence the entire universe, all the stars and the explosion and the billions of galaxies that we've yet to even discover, that God. The Bible says, behold, that He stands at the door and He knocks. 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 And He never stops knocking. And if you're saying, yeah, I don't hear the knock, it's probably because your life's too loud. That's what this is all about. This movement that is 1122, at least once a week we try to get in here and just kind of clear away the clutter so that you can lean in and hear the knock. Because he's pursuing you and I know he's pursuing you because he sent Jesus to die on the cross. And he's knocking and some of you may say, yeah, but I don't deserve to have dinner with the almighty sovereign king of the universe. And he would say, yeah, I know, I know, that's why I sent Jesus. That's so why I sent Jesus to forgive your sin, to dress you in the righteousness of Christ, that you would be presentable at my table, and you were invited. You were invited at the table with the Almighty King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and anyone, hear that? Do you know why this is, that's why 1122 is a movement for all people? Because we believe Jesus when he said anyone. We believe that his knock applies to anyone who would hear his voice and let him in. And he would sit down and not judge you and not just try to fix you and not correct all your doctrine and theology and language and all of that. That's not the point. That'll happen over time. That'll happen over time as a result of just sitting down right here face to face with the one that created you and sustains you and loves you. And knows you and says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would hear my voice and let me in, I would come in. And I would do this. This is called a relationship. That's why this thing is a movement for all people. For all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. So my question to anyone and everyone is this. Do you hear it? I mean, do you hear the knock? And the crazy thing is, is um, he's not the SWAT team. He's not going to kick the door down because he doesn't want to arrest you. He wants to eat with you. That's the difference. And he could. He could. 
He spoke the whole universe into existence. Do you think you could resist? Absolutely not. But what he wants to do is just knock because he's, he's a good God. He just knocks and says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And maybe he's been knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. And some of you are like, yeah, I hear the knock, but I got a lot of questions. Great, invite him in. Sit down, start the relationship, surrender your life to Christ. The crazy thing is, is that some of those questions will be answered, some of them won't. Don't you remember the little Dixie Cup mind we have in the Atlantic Ocean of who he is? Sometimes you might not be able to understand the almighty, sovereign, immutable God. Can I tell you part of it that I don't understand why in the world he'd want to sit down and eat dinner with me? I don't know. But I heard the knock, and I said, okay, I'm in. Come on in, Jesus. Come on in. And he sat down with me and totally changed my life. And he could do the same thing for you. So the question is, will you invite him in? Because he's knocking. I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. To do that right now. That you would believe, like Abraham believed. And God accounted to him as righteousness. And he was a friend of God. That you, in this moment, right now, could be a friend with the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth through his Son, Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? And if you hear the knock, and you know that you know, maybe you've been here for a long time, maybe you had a lot of questions, whatever your resistances are or were, whatever, that's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about, do you hear the knock that Jesus talked about, the knock in your life, and you would say, okay, even though I don't deserve it, I believe that when Christ died on the cross, He paid the price for me. It counted for me. He bought a seat for me at the table. And right now, I want to surrender my life to Christ and invite Him in. If that's you, just raise your hand where you are. Say, God, I hear the knock, and here I am. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank You and I praise You that since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, and the Bible says that, God, You came walking through the garden, calling out to the man and the woman, from that moment to this very moment right now, God, you've never stopped pursuing us. You've never stopped knocking and knocking and knocking. And so, God, you are omnipotent. You are omniscient. God, you are omnipresent and you are immutable. And for that, God, you are worthy of our praise. But, Lord, you also stepped down in the form of a man to suffer and die on a cross, to be resurrected again, to sit at the right hand of the Father will return one day, but until then, God, you knock, on, you knock on the door of our own lives, and for that, we love you. We love you, because you loved us first. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And would you please stand? We respond around here to the gospel. Do you know the word worship just means our response to God for who He is and what He's done? And so we lift our voices together because He's worth it. And we invite you to come down to the altar at the end of every service and pray. You know why? Because he's powerful enough to do something about it. And he already knows what's going on in your world. So why don't you tap in or plug in to that power. And we bring our tithes and offerings, our first and our best, back to God. Because he first loved us by sending his best in his son, Jesus Christ. Let us respond.